Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the whole of Psalm 2, which we found on page 431, our standard pew Bibles are 841 of the large print. Psalm 2, before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for the rains that we have received. We thank you in advance for the rains that we are yet to receive. Trusting, Lord, that you know what we need and that you, you give generously and provide what we do need. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures that we have to read. We thank you for the ways that you have provided those for us because In them we have your own self-revelation, showing us who you are, what you're about, who we are, whether with or without you. Lord, we thank you that we can see your true character and not have to be left guessing about what our Creator is like. Lord, we pray this morning... that as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that you would give us ears to listen and minds to understand. And Lord, that you would prepare our hearts even now for what we are to hear. That even this morning, by your word and by your spirit, you would change us evermore into the people that you have created us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Excuse me. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Excuse me. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, Or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Then turning to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, page 860, or 1646. John 1, 1 through 14. Famous words, John opens... His gospel account, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and his dwelling, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I like that Davis is listening, gets excited when we talk about children. That's good. Well, last week, we finished our series on evangelism, the REACH, R-E-A-C-H. We talked about how uh, we remember that God saves people, that we are to, even though it's God who does the saving, we are to engage people in conversations, spiritual nature, that we are to accept them for who they are, where they are. And yet we're still to present them with the challenge of Jesus. And that finally, H, last week, that this is all to lead to hope. And we saw the example of the Samaritan woman, who we called the least likely evangelist, who takes this message of Jesus back to her community, and people respond with joy. And they come out, and they meet Jesus for themselves, and they see for themselves how wonderful Jesus is. And they say, you know, it's not just because of what you said anymore. Now we believe because we've seen him ourselves. We've heard him ourselves and we know him to be the savior of the world. And this is, you know, one of those hallelujah moments. And yet, we said, uh, at the end of last week, kind of teased you with what's coming next, said that this is not always how it goes. That in this woman's case, she goes out and she says, hey, come meet Jesus. And people say, okay, and they go meet Jesus. And hallelujah. But that sometimes, and that still does happen, but that sometimes what happens is you go out and you say, hey, come meet Jesus. And people say, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Oh, I thought this was going to go differently. <laughs> and that happens too. And so the question we have is, what do we do in those situations? And especially what do we do when those situations seem to just keep coming? I read an article last week, a Christianity Today article, saying that uh, in California, the state schools in California have now de-recognized InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I don't know if you saw that one in the news. That's what's happened. So InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which has been on college campuses for years, um, they have now been de-recognized. The schools no longer give them uh, the same recognition they do with other campus organizations because they're sticking to their rule of you have to be a Christian to be a leader in the organization. <laughs> kind of makes sense, right? <clears throat> so the school said, well, no, you can't do that. 
that's not fair to everybody. And so if you're going to insist that the leaders of your Christian organization must be Christians themselves, then no, you can't be, uh, can't receive the same status as other groups on campus. Okay. In the article, it also was clear to say, you know, we're not going to call this persecution, though, because that would make light of some real difficulties people are facing throughout the world, where people are being tortured and killed for their faith even today in various parts of the world. But what it does serve to illustrate is that, uh, and by the way, these university can continue to function with students there. They just uh, no longer get access to uh, rooms on campus for free. They now have to pay to get on there. They can't come to the same you know, fairs where they'd meet everybody, where all the organizations are present. They're not one of those organizations anymore, so they can't do that. Just limits, limits what they do. Um, but anyway, they said it's not, we're not going to call this persecution, but I will say what it serves to illustrate is that even in the United States of America, even today, it seems that there are ways in which Christians are increasingly marginalized if they stick up for Jesus. It's okay. It's okay to be a person of faith. It's okay to believe in some higher being. But when you bring Jesus into it, suddenly it's like, well, if you're going to be one of those people, you've got to go off to the side. And that's becoming more and more common even here. And so the question is, what do we do as Christians when that becomes more and more common in our own personal experience? When we feel like we are running an endurance race and we're just getting worn out, and it just seems like, you know, maybe I'll just take a rest. Maybe I'll just um, sit on the sidelines for a while and let somebody else run this one. Maybe, maybe I'll just stop. Go back home. That is why the book of Hebrews was written. The entire book of Hebrews is written. We don't know who it's written by, but we know who it's written to. It's written to people who were living as Christians in a place and a time where it was no longer popular. It wasn't ever really popular to be Christian. And they were facing difficulties on two fronts. One, from the Roman government, and two, from the uh, Jewish people. Because in the, uh, in the eyes of Rome, the political leaders of the time, They said, you know what, we have all kinds of gods, you worship whatever you want to, that's fine, just as long as at the end of the day, you are a good Roman. We're okay with it. You pay your taxes on time, you don't cause any big riots, we're good. Jewish people had kind of lived under that. They didn't like it, but they did it. And the Romans saw the Christians as another Jewish denomination. Jewish people, however, did not see the Christians as another Jewish denomination, And they said, no, these people are not us. Quit treating them like us. They're different. We want them to stop. And that's why you see Paul, when you you remember uh, early on in the book of Acts, we see Saul going around. uh, We know it's Saul and Paul. Um, He's going around as a Pharisee, as a Jewish leader, who, because he is so passionately Jewish, he wants to stomp out all the Christians, arrest them, throw them in prison, have them killed, fine, whatever it takes but we're going to crush this message because, as a good Jewish man, he sees these people are not us. So the Jewish people 
have had this animosity with Christians for some time. And it gets to the point that then the Romans, same sort of thing, where they say, okay, if they're not Jewish, and we also see that where they keep going, they keep causing these problems. Jewish people don't want to claim them. And they keep going around saying, quit worshiping idols. You're worshiping things that aren't real. You're giving your lives over and you're placing the trust and the hope of your life in something that cannot possibly save you. And it's not going to end well for you. And so, for example, they go to uh, the city of Ephesus and preaching and saying, quit worshiping idols. And Ephesus had a good deal of their economy that was based on making and selling idols and worshiping idols in the temple. And so when he comes around and says, hey, quit doing, I want everybody to quit doing the thing that this city's economy is based on. You think that was a popular message? No, it was not. And they started a riot in the city, and it went on for hours, and people chanting and chanting and chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the leaders come in, they're like, this is not okay. Or at least people are, this needs to stop. And this kind of thing happens. And so the Roman authorities say, look, if you're going to insist on this Jesus being the only way, and that everybody follows this Jesus, then we're going to say, knock it off. As long as you're willing to just do your own little private thing, fine. But if you're going to make this a public thing, if you're going to be sharing this with other people and telling them how to live their lives, quit it. Does that sound familiar at all? The Christians at this time are facing pressure from the Romans to quit it. They're facing pressure from the Jews who they keep saying, this is This is Jewish. This is just the fulfillment of what has been going on from the beginning. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see this is what it was all leading to. And they say, no, 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 no. We're not going there at all. And you need to quit it. And so everywhere they turn, people are telling them to quit it, quit it, quit it. Just stop talking about this Jesus. This is who this book was written to. And it was written to people facing the difficulties on every side and giving them the reminders. The reminder to consider again why it is we worship this Jesus and why it is that no matter how hard things get, no matter how marginalized we feel, no matter how much we feel like it would just be so much easier if I listened to all those voices saying, quit it, and I just quit it. It would be so much easier. And this book says, here's why you don't listen to those voices. Here's why you don't stop. Because Jesus is worth everything else. Every decision we make, in some instance, in some way, is a matter of conflicting priorities. And so you say, well, let's see, for lunch today on the menu, I have a delicious cheeseburger, or I have this really bland salad. The one, I think, would be quite wonderful for my mouth, but probably not so good for the rest of my body. On the other hand, the salad may be very good for the rest of my body, but that's just not what I'm in the mood for today, taste-wise. Now, if you are in the mood for a salad, this is no decision. You just eat the salad. But otherwise, you have a decision to make. When you have this decision to make, it's conflicting priorities. In Right now, which one is more important to me, the taste or the health? And some days... It's health. Most days, it's taste. And that's where the priorities come into conflict. 
And you have this decision to make. And what this book is going to say is we're going to have choices to make all the time where the priorities are going to say, is Jesus above everything else? You remember the rich young man who went away sad when Jesus told him to sell all of his possessions and give everything to the poor? Did he go away sad because he hated poor people? He's like, no, I'm not giving them my stuff. It wasn't the went away sad because he didn't like poor people. He didn't want to give them anything. It's because Jesus exposed him. Jesus said, you claim, like, you claim that you want to follow me. You claim that you want life, real life. And yet, when I put money and your possessions and the things you own in conflict with what it means to follow me, and I give you a command about your money that you don't like, you say, well, let's see, which one's really more important to me? My money or following Jesus? And the man goes away sad because he realizes his priority is his money. It's not following Jesus after all. He'd been fooling himself. So as we face these choices in our own lives, we have the book of Hebrews to remind us that Jesus is above everything. And he is worth everything. He is worth giving everything for. So here's how... It's a long introduction. We're about done now, aren't we? Okay. Just wait till we get going. So here's how it begins. Hebrews chapter 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Your scepter will be a scepter of justice. Your your scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels... Did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? This is chapter 1. We'll go on from here. As he continues to make the case, Jesus above all else. And because of the long introduction, I've not left myself enough time to cover this adequately. So we'll point out a few things. One, that whole second section there, 
of Jesus being above the angels. This is, this is just step one in his laying out the whole thing. For those people who said, you know, I get that Jesus is a, he's a good guy, he's a good teacher, but angels, I mean, those are spiritual beings. They, uh, they are in heaven worshiping God day and night. So surely those, those are worthy of special honor. Those are maybe even worthy of worship. Maybe those are ones that we should pray to. And he says, no. And actually that was going on back in, that, uh, in those times. Those, something that even Jewish people were tempted to do is worship the angels. And they said, look, didn't, didn't angels show up at all these special times in our history? So shouldn't we then uh, give them special honor and worship? He says, no. He says, actually, all that goes to Jesus. And when you compare the two, Jesus is above even the angels. And so he starts quoting. He says, look, this is all through the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament, you can find things that it says about angels and things that it says about Jesus, and you see, oh, Jesus is in a whole different category. Which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've become your father? No, the angels, it says, are servants. Now, if you think about any family situation where you have parents, children, and servants, where is the closest relationship? Is it going to be between the parent and the child, or the servant's going to get a special place at the table in place of the child? Absolutely not. Now, the servants are there to serve the whole household, and the son is a part of the family. And there is a closeness and a bond there that no matter how close the servant is, it doesn't compare. And he says, God never says that to the angels, that you are my son, but he says to Jesus, you are my son. There is a special relationship there. And in fact, this is one that goes on from the very beginning. Remember it says, as we began, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. One of the ways that he spoke to the people was through angels and lots of different ways. In a burning bush, for example. But he says, but now, in these last days, the days that began when Jesus was raised from the dead and will come to an end when he comes back again, these are the last days that we are living in. Everything else was leading up to this time, and now everything that we are in leads up to Jesus coming back. And he says, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. What has he spoken to us? We have questions. We have questions of the meaning of life, existence itself, the purpose for my life. We have questions of where did we come from? Where are we going? Is there a God? If there is a God, what is he like? And people had gotten hints of this all along the way throughout the Old Testament times. But now, we have Jesus. And when you look to Jesus... He gives you the answers. For is there a God? What is he like? That was supposed to be our job. To show all of creation what God is like. That we were to be those who who were created in the image of God to reflect his glory throughout the whole universe. And none of us did it. And it's no fair just passing the buck back to Adam and Eve saying, well, they didn't do it, but, you know, I would have. No, we didn't do it either. 
Every single one of us has turned to our own way. We have at some point taken the priorities between God and something else and said, I'll take the something else. And because of that, we do not clearly show God's glory. But Jesus does. And when you look at Jesus, you see what he's really like, what God is really like, in the flesh. I wish that when people looked at me and the way that I live, that what they would see is, oh, that's what God is like. But it's not. It's not. And it makes me sad. And I keep hoping that someday it will be more and more the case. And I hope the same for each of us, that God would continually conform us to the likeness of Jesus so that when people see us, they know what God is like. <clears throat> Here's how James Stewart, a Scottish theologian, talks about Jesus. It's one thing to say he's like God, but it's another thing to understand who he really is, what he was really like. We spent all last year going through the Gospel of Mark. I would encourage you, by the way, to, uh, to do that at some point. Pick any one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Pick any one of those. And find a time where you have an hour or two to sit down and read straight through one book all the way through, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, to see what Jesus is really like instead of the caricatures that, uh, that often get presented. Here's how James Stewart puts it. He said, He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. Okay? He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent joy of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so kind or compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love, yet... On one occasion, he demanded of the Pharisees how they were expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Yet, for the the sheer stark realism, he has all of us self-styled realists soundly beaten. He was the servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet, masterfully, he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another to get away in their mad rush from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others. Yet at the last, he himself did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. When we look at Jesus, we see what God is really like. And when, and when it says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the one through whom all was created. He is the one who is the word existing eternally with the Father, representing him. And yet, and it says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. After he had provided purification for sins... Why did he do that? 
He'd never sinned. He got it right. He's the only one who never needed sin to be paid for unless, unless his love for us was greater than love for his own life. And so he pays for our sin. And in this way, proves that not only is he the eternal son, but that he is the Messiah, the king over all. So he sits down at the majesty of heaven. This is This is a shame. <clears throat> give, me, give me five more minutes. <laughs> um, <laughs> when we look at Jesus as being above all else, um, two quotes from, well, one from Tim Keller and another from N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright put it this way. He says, How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and and walked into our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham. A nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. This is what the Hebrew people were trying to do. We're trying to live in the shallow world in between, where they say, you know what? Yeah, I get it. Jesus is um, something special but I don't know if he's really worth giving my life to. And that seems to be what's being asked. The author says, oh, he is. He's worth giving your life to and not living with Jesus on the sidelines, but right in the center of your life. Tim Keller said, a woman teaching the Bible many years ago, um, talking about... Jesus, being the exact representation of God, said, think about this. He said, thinking about this changed his life. So think about this. If the distance between the earth and the sun, 93 million miles, by the way, the the distance between the earth and the sun, if that 93 million miles was condensed down to the thickness of a sheet of paper. 93 million miles right there. Then the distance between the earth and our nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. If your mind's not blown yet, just wait. The distance across the galaxy, the diameter of our galaxy, would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. That's right. Our galaxy is just one little speck of dust in the universe as it is. Now, Do you remember that it just said that Jesus is sustaining all things by his powerful word? We saw that he's the one through whom everything was made and that he is still sustaining all things by his powerful word. So here's what she says next. If there is a person who holds all of that together with the word of his power, his pinky, as it were, is this the kind of person 
is this the kind of person, she said, that you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? And that drives it home. He is not interested in being our personal assistant. He is worthy of giving our everything to. Our everything. He is like no one else. One final story, I promise. I knew a woman years ago at a church. We were sharing how we came to faith. She was actually brought to faith in Jesus through her um, public high school history class. That's not a usual story. But the way that it happened was that her history teacher had written on the board a bunch of names. Names of leaders of various movements and military leaders and political leaders. People of influence throughout the world and throughout world history. And so she came into class and she looked up at the board and she saw all these names that were up there. And Jesus was one of the names on the list. And her knee-jerk, kind of instinctual response was that Jesus doesn't belong in that list. Not because he wasn't influential, but because he's not just another name of influential people. He's not the same as everybody else. He is unique. He is different. He is in some way different. She couldn't quite put her finger on how that was the case. But she knew there was something different about that. And so she thought, well, wait a second. I don't even know why I think this. Who is this Jesus? And that began her journey, her search into finding out more about who Jesus is. And the more she found out about who he is, the more she found out he's not just another name on a list of influential people. But he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. And he is the one who has provided purification for our sins. And he is worth giving everything to in the face of whatever we face. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.